You're listening to the Saz Revolution Show. Bringing you front row seats to the Saz Revolution with your host, Alex Thuma. Okay, welcome, Saz people, to the Saz Revolution Show, bringing you front row seats to the Saz Revolution, courtesy of Sascribe Media. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and a very cool guest uh, joining me today, uh, Owen McCabe, CEO of uh, Intercom. Uh, welcome, Owen. Thanks, Alex. Uh, excited to be on the show. Yeah, no, I'm excited that you're here. Now, I think, and I, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure, right, that our discerning listeners and, uh, and readers have heard of Intercom. Uh, otherwise, they're probably listening to the wrong podcast or, or reading the wrong uh, online publication. But um, uh, maybe you can uh, uh, kind of help us uh, uh, explain a little bit more, you, you know, what Il- uh, Intercom does and how you help companies. Yeah, sure. So uh, we sell to internet businesses exclusively. Um, we're a software product. Um, and we solve uh, uh, or aim to solve everything um, related to customer communications. Um, if you want to speak to your users about um, support issues, make product announcements, you want to onboard your customers, you want to sell to them, um, uh, it helps in customer success use cases. The full range of customer communications is what Intercom really cares about. And we specifically sell packages uh, for each of those teams. Uh, The kind of goal with Intercom is uh, that uh, internet businesses and the teams within them can all be on the same page, have one view of the customer, uh, and ultimately provide the customer a a more personal, wholesome, uh, holistic uh, uh, experience rather than the fragmented shitty, robotic, dear value customer, thanks for your inquiry, your ticket number 5053 type responses we're used to today. Okay. Oh, so w- would you say, um, and I believe actually maybe you have said before that Intercom is, is sort of part of this new wave of uh, internet companies uh, or, you know, SaaS companies that are disrupting the, uh, the incumbents that, you know, started off this movement? Um, that's definitely how we think about it over a long enough period of time. I mean, the... Uh, incumbents in this space, for example, um, you know, the Zendesks, Marketos, even Salesforce, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, they were invented in and created for um, a very much a previous generation. Um, each of these respective businesses has a bright future uh, going up market selling to increasingly large companies. Um, but the generation that came after them um, uh, needs new solutions and uh, this generation finds all of these solutions, these point solutions, uh, too complex for the problems that they have. Um, and so the thing that Intercom is, I guess, trying to solve, not on like a whole bunch of different SaaS companies of our generation, um, uh, is kind of exclusively new to this uh, new generation. Um, you want to provide simple and integrated uh, solutions rather than big bloated complex solutions like the previous generation has. Since all of these companies have started the market has actually grown um, uh, below them. If you, you know, if you think about you know, five, six, seven, eight years ago when Zendesk actually started, there mm-hmm. were substantially less um, small to medium-sized internet businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the iPhone didn't exist. The App Store definitely didn't exist. Mm-hmm. There's well over one million apps in the US Apple App Store alone now. Um, <clears throat> we're kind of at the forefront uh, also of a... Uh, global growth in internet businesses. You know, only half of our customers are actually in the United States. 
The rest are in India and China and all over Europe. Um, uh, and again, that's brand new. Um, internet business was kind of exclusively the domain of the United States and specifically the Valley, and that's just not the case anymore. Uh, so, I mean, do you, do you foresee that, uh, I, I guess, you know, from this point onwards or, or even previously that, you know, e- every business will be someday uh, an internet business if they're not already? <clears throat> yeah, sure. That's definitely part of my shtick when yeah. I talk to investors. Um, you know, it, have a think about what business is not an internet business. You know, I define internet business as one which communicates with their customers. Uh, uh, through the internet. Um, if you think about any restaurant you can order from online, um, doctor's offices that you can book appointments with online, um, so many little stores that use the likes of Square and are now on the Square Marketplace. Um, you know, there's just a whole range of businesses that previously were kind of bricks and mortars businesses, but now use the internet to connect with customers. Um, and so I uh, call those internet businesses for sure. Okay, and and so um, clearly the uh, the investors, um, you know, have uh, bought your your shtick, uh, <laughs> as, as you so call it, because I think you've raised something like thirty one million dollars to date, right? We have so far. Yeah. That's right. Um, uh, but going back to your initial investment, um, you know, an interesting story that uh, that I heard is, uh, you know, one of your angel investors was Biz Stone. Uh, or is Bizstone, um, mm-hmm. you know, of uh, a co-founder of uh, of Twitter. So, can you tell us a bit of uh, how he became to be an angel investor in Intercom? Yeah, for sure. Um, there's a fun and a kind of a sweet and cute story that actually has totally bitten me in the ass, but that's okay. Uh, I'll explain why in a second. But um, basically, I first came to San Francisco in I think 2007, uh, and. Um, Twitter was really only just getting started at that stage. It was um, uh, still primarily, um, uh, or, or at least in great part, based around text messages and the cell network. You know, when I spoke to the Twitter guys for the first time, they did speak about their focus on doing deals with the, the, the telephone networks around the world. Um, and, I mean, it's a stupid story. I was, I was part of a group in Dublin that um, organized uh, what was known as a tweet-up. Sounds so terribly corny and embarrassing now. Um, already regretting saying this. Um, but um, I, you know, was over here. I mailed Biz. Biz was kind of like the primary voice and name behind Twitter at the time. He would send out those emails to everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mailed Biz at Twitter.com and said, hey, there's a bunch of Irish folks in town. We're part of the Dublin tweet-up group. Would you like a drink? I mean, just a stupid kind of a... I didn't really expect anything from it. But I think I got an answer in about 90 minutes. And a few hours after that, we were having beers with the early Twitter team. Um, and they were super, super gracious to us. And uh, I remember, you know, kind of stumbling out after that night thinking, fuck, Twitter thing's going to be amazing. We should totally build a Twitter app. And we did. We built a thing called Quitter. Again, super embarrassing. <laughs> You know, these things, it was a different time. It was when it was actually cool to have uh, products with names like Quitter. What Quitter did was it would email uh, people when someone unfollowed you. Again, it wasn't even a startup. It was a dumb thing that we built. Yeah. Anyway, this kind of like started, a, you know, a, a simple type relationship with the, the Twitter guys. And when I came back to San Francisco, I just mailed Biz again. He was always very available, friendly. He really didn't know me at all, but he was just, you know, very generous with his time and ultimately his money when he invested in us. 
the reason I say it, it's bit me in the ass is that now folks who want to meet me, mail me and ask me for beers, citing <laughs> the, the beer story and I can't say no, of course. So <laughs> he, he, he was good to me. So now I have to be good to other people too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's karma, right? I guess. Um, exactly. So, uh, and um, uh, of course, uh, I mean, you, you know, your accent, uh, you know, slightly sort of gives it away, but you mentioned, and, and, and we know that um, uh, Intercom uh, is, uh, well, I'll say largely has an Irish influence. You're all your four, or well, you're one of four co-founders yep. uh, that all originate from, uh, from Ireland. Uh, and um, uh, one of them, uh, Des Trainer. Um, is, uh, well, I, I guess he's sort of, you know, pretty well known, you know, within the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how did you guys sort of meet and, you know, how does he compliment you, um, you know, and what's the importance of having a co-founder or three co-founders with mm-hmm. the different skill sets? So I guess there's a, a few questions there. But Sure, sure. Some of those questions are more interesting than the others. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the, you know, the, the story of how I met the guys uh, is pretty straightforward. Like a lot of product-driven software companies at the moment, I consulted at the start of my uh, career, um, and you know I know so many CEOs and founders here of, of product-driven SaaS businesses who did exactly the same thing. It's pretty fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, the kind of side story there is the only reason they did that was that they you know were kind of unemployable, hated having people telling them what to do, um, and you know basically traded in their talents for cash. Turns out, by the way, that as a consultant. Uh, 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 you don't have a boss, you have money bosses. <laughs> so uh, uh, a lot of those people who really don't want a job end up with money jobs and they hate consulting and so they try and get out of the consulting business and they build products like we did uh, and eventually we escaped. Um, but uh, that was it. You know, Des was one of the people I hired for my consulting company, Contrast. We soon became great partners. Um, the way Des complimented uh, uh, me was always pretty clear. I was the you know, I guess risk taking, <laughs> uh, envelope pushing type guy. This was the grown up, far more rational. Um, I would have got in substantially more trouble early on in my career if it wasn't for Des. Um, but we uh, were always a wonderful yin and yang in that respect. You know, I, I could help come up with some interesting ideas, and Des could help shape them into something that was actually grounded and potentially useful to the world. So, um, yeah, a beautiful partnership. The importance of having founders is crystal clear. Um, my heart breaks for folks who are in search of a co-founder. You know, there's ideas like founder dating, et cetera, where people mm. actually go to meet other people who want to start businesses. And um, I'm quite sure that some wonderful businesses have been built that way. Um, but personally, um, you know, starting a company, with someone is very much akin to getting married to someone. In fact, it's perhaps a little more complex since you have very real, uh, uh, rational, logical exp- uh, you know, expectations of each other. Um, there's a lot of money on the line. There's a lot of law involved. Um, and it's a deeply personal thing. It pertains to people's hopes and dreams in the world. You know, um, It's far more likely that a founder uh, uh, marriage will break than a a romantic marriage um it's just harder it's a harder type relationship and so if you're gonna if you're gonna if you're gonna start a company with someone and enter into such a situation you really want to know them you want to know that they wonderfully complement your skills that all the things that you're bad at they're good at and vice versa 
that you can actually work together, that you appreciate each other, that there's mutual respect, that your kind of like lifestyle and life interests are aligned. You know, I, I know a lot of people who complement each other's skills, but where one person wants to build a game-changing monster of a business, someone else is far more interested in uh, building what uh, some people might call a lifestyle business. And I have no problem with lifestyle businesses. Maybe that, that term is even unfair. But uh, certainly not everyone is interested in building something that requires a 24-7 type commitment. So it's just so, so hard to make founder relationships work. And it's extra hard if you don't know them. And so because we knew each other, me, Des, Kieran, and David, for a good four years or more before Intercom, and we had worked together in two previous businesses, made us substantially easier. Also, the way in which we complemented each other's skills were really, really clear. And together, us four, we, were, we comprised a tiny little you know, full-stack team that could actually make it and market and sell and finance uh, a SaaS business. Um, so I don't know. I can't, I can't more strongly say you need great founders. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a good answer. And I guess if it's, um, well, you know, more difficult than a romantic sort of marriage, you know, being in a, yep. in a, in a business marriage, and the odds aren't very good these days for romantic yep. marriages. So uh, <laughs> that, that means, I guess, you, you've got to try and get it even more sort of right. Um, yep. you know, um, so, uh, but yeah, it seems that you guys, uh, you know, have that uh, and, 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 and with your sort of previous history, um, you, you know, that, that's, uh, I guess, a, a good sort of ingredient to, uh, you know, part of the success of, of Intercom to date, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but this, um, as CEO of Intercom, this is not your first uh, CEO uh, sort of role. I, I believe you've been CEO at, uh, well, two previous mm -hmm. uh, companies. And, um, but, and going back before that, uh, you've got this uh, designing background. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, are you happy now kind of being, a CEO and I guess, you know, not having as much time to, to or any time to be a designer now. I mean, you know, can you actually do both or, or you, you can't now you're CEO? Um, I, have a, I have a simple answer and I have a smart ass answer. I'll give you the simple answer first. The simple answer is um, no, I don't design anymore. Um, um, but I'm very happy with what I do do. Um, the CEO role requires you to in one part, um, be an extreme generalist and work across so many areas, not only from engineering and product and product strategy and then marketing and sales and everything else in between and people operations, but things like finance and financing and um, the meaning of all sorts of different types of debt. I mean, it just the breadth of things you have to like learn and understand and be good at is, is, is quite interesting. Uh, and um, intimidating if you knew that up front. I think most people who end up being CEOs of any reasonably sized company, um, we're about 100, I think we're 104 people today. Um, I don't think they have any clue what their job is going to look like when they begin it. Um, I don't think they have any clue whatsoever. I certainly didn't. Um, but I think that the people who end up being successful are those who um, they're intellectually curious, um, they like learning about many different types of things. They pride themselves on being able to adapt. Um, and I've definitely had to do that, and I really enjoy that. But anyway, here's the smart-ass answer. I absolutely do design still, but now I design companies and teams and organizational structures. Um, I also help in product design. 
I do uh, get involved deeply in the design of all new, uh, you know, fundamentally new components of our products. Uh, I also work closely with our um, head of uh, brand design. Um, so I, I, I definitely get to flex my design muscles. I'm just not stuck in Photoshop all day. And you know what? I'm okay with that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Very good. And um, I, I, th- I, I, I watched a, uh, a talk you gave, um, which is on, on YouTube. I can't remember the title of it. But yeah. uh, you, you previously, well, we stated on, certainly on, on that video that the future will be owned by designers. Um, mm-hmm. you know, Pat, can you elaborate on, on, on why you believe that to be so? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So... I'd restate that now since I'm not in a room full of designers. Um, uh, but uh, when stated then, which is about two to three years ago, um, uh, what I was really referring to is that generally speaking, the products that we're making in software and the internet, uh, they're moving, you know, in some senses, up, you know, up the stack or the, 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 the level um, of specificity or the technology level where we're actually innovating is, 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 is moving upwards. What that means is that, you know, if you think about, and this is a gross, gross generalization of how the how Silicon Valley came to be, but then, you know, the Silicon and Silicon Valley refer to the, uh, uh, the material used in semiconductors and uh, uh, a big component of, of Silicon Valley, if not all, all of Silicon Valley at, at, at the start was uh, uh, transistors and, 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 and microchips uh, after some time. Um, and over time then, those uh, transistors were indeed made into microchips and made into chips and processors and then eventually uh, made into larger components uh, like motherboards and uh, graphics cards and then um, shipped in different ways by different companies uh, as whole computers and different computer technologies and servers. Um, Then uh, uh, over a period of time, a software industry appeared a lot of the software was low-level infrastructure, a lot of databases. Um, over some longer period of time, we built operating systems. We built business applications. Um, the internet arrived. We built internet applications. Um, and as you move upwards and you, you build things on top of other things, um, y- y- you're just innovating higher up the stack. You know, like the you know, uh, if you think of all the big technology companies now, the multi-billion-dollar technology companies. The unicorns, the people we all talk about, they're not semiconductor companies. They're way higher up the stack. And compared to five to ten years ago, we were more, we were closer to engineering than we were uh, innovating around uh, workflows and user experience and customer experience. And so design is a very, very, very broad, grossly vague term for a lot of the things that sits on top of the raw engineering uh, uh, technologies that we used to deliver um, earlier on. If you compare today's applications, be they on the web or mobile, with the products, the software products we made, say, 10 years ago, today they look substantially more, and this is the gross use of that term, designed, than the things that we used previously. If you look at a Salesforce from 10 years ago or Salesforce today, um, even, and that's kind of uh, a little job, at Salesforce, you know, Salesforce looks like a terminal to a database, right? Um, and again, I don't use this term design broadly like this. This is the wrong way to, to, to talk about design, but I'm just generalizing for the purposes of this conversation. There is significantly more design applied and used in the applications we build today, and they're not terminals to a database. So when I said back then that 
the future will be owned by designers. Apart from the fact that I was trying to uh, achieve a, some sort of applause from a crowd of designers, which I definitely did. Um, Probably try to really recruit was, them as well, right? <laughs> uh, correct. Um, but what I was really referring to is that in the future, um, a lot of the innovation will be in the user experience, the customer experience. It will be things that designers can do more than engineers can do. Uh, and that has proved to be true and remains true. Um, and you just need to think about design in a, uh, it, it, you know, in a more detailed manner. It's not, it's not look and feel and style more than it is designing the actual new workflows and the way that products work and fit into, their, into our lives. So hope that makes some sense. <laughs> yeah, no, no, ab absolutely. A good answer. And I, I guess from the, the innovation, you know, led by design to, you know, innovation or innovative business models and innovative, um, I guess, kind of sales models. Um, mm -hmm. You know, one um, uh, thing or, or actually a post I, I read sort of this week from, uh, I mean, do you, do you read uh, Thomas Tungus's uh, sure. daily, mm -hmm. daily posts? Uh, I don't know how he finds time to do it, but uh, um, uh, he, there, there was one, the innovator solution for SaaS startups. And yeah. he, he talks about the flywheel model where, um, you know, we're looking at sort of flipping the sales model, um, you know, for startups on its head where uh, enterprise sales you know, instead of becoming hunters, which they're traditionally, I guess, kind of known for, you know, become the farmers and they become exclusively inbound or an inbound enterprise sales team. You know, is, is this, um, you, you know, what you see within uh, Intercom at all um, or is something that you believe in, in, in this model for, uh, um, for SaaS startups? Yeah. So I think that uh, basically, um, you know, SaaS business models, and by the way, SaaS software as a service. I mean, I don't know, and I personally don't know any software companies that don't deliver their their um, their product as a service. So we're really just talking about like software in this respect. Software business models are evolving um, very, very quickly. Um, I think that they perhaps evolve even more quickly if it wasn't for the fact that we all um, uh, uh, look at each other to try and draw inspiration and understand how to model our businesses. Um, but you know you, you you need this and you know great outlets like the one that you're building this podcast and your blog you know it's required for all of us who are doing this relatively speaking for our, for the first time to learn um, but they're evolving so fast such that I don't think we have the language and the terms and the kind of analogies and frameworks to actually describe what's new about these things um, but I think that that Tomas is definitely uh, uh, you know made in you know a start. Um, absolutely, I see this in our business, and I see this in every new generation uh, SaaS or, or software business. Um, there's a bunch of things going on here. None of these things change in isolation, and there's no way I'll be able to think of all of the components. But I'll tell you a couple of things that are interrelated. One is that you know, like I said, we're innovating higher up the stack now. Um, we're building product-driven companies. Uh, we're building companies that very much consider the end user and customer in mind. You know, I'm talking about workflows and customer experiences. Um, so, therefore, we're building products that are actually appreciated uh, and understood by uh, the end user. They are purchased by the end user. The end user is now getting familiar with and comfortable with these types of models whereby they will uh, uh, pull out their own credit card or use a company credit card to sign up for a product or sign up for a free trial without any credit card. Um, you know, they're picking these th things up directly. 
uh, they're hearing about it on mediums like Twitter that didn't previously exist, um, Product Hunt that didn't previously exist. Um, you know, people are discovering it uh, themselves in new ways. They don't go to conferences to learn about these things. They're not reading trade magazines. Uh, they're not hearing about software from cold calls that they're getting <clears throat> by uh, salespeople. They are really uh, themselves discovering and learning about the software that they want to use, and they're buying it for themselves. Um, and this fundamentally changes everything. They are coming to the software businesses um, uh, uh, and choosing the software that they want to buy, um, and they are getting started all on their own. Um, uh, in this respect, because they come to the product uh, so easily, um, the uh, business can then afford to charge substantially less because the business actually isn't investing in a crazy amount of advertising and expensive salespeople to pull these people in. So the cost of acquisition now goes incredibly low, so they can afford to charge a whole lot less. But of course, because they're delivering end-user software as opposed to big organizational uh, level software or infrastructure or databases, um, uh, it, uh, it now needs to be cheaper. So all of these things are in interrelated, um, such that um, you know, the net effect is that these new generation of product-driven software companies that acquire customers at scale cheaply um, now have uh, customers coming to them if they have the most interesting and valuable product on the market. Uh, and then uh, humans can be employed to, at scale, uh, better understand uh, what certain customers need, specifically certain customers who have more complex requirements, uh, who are going to be able to extract a lot more value from the product and therefore will fall out of the standardized price plans uh, and therefore uh, 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 will need to and want to speak to a salesperson. And that's what we do at Intercom. I mean, we blog, we create a great product. We have many thousands of people who check us out every day. Some few hundred of them create accounts and sign up. Uh, and uh, a small amount of them uh, uh, are from large companies with more complex requirements that need extra help, extra time and attention. They need some demos. They need some legal considerations. They need some integrations, etc. They're who talk to our salespeople. And then our salespeople can uh, help them, give them a fantastic experience and create a price that's fair to them uh, outside of our, our price plans. So we're very much now in an inbound world where our salespeople are working on a <clears throat> consultative basis. Salespeople are not the demand generation. They're not pulling people in. They're actually helping, uh, helping people uh, buy the product. And to that end, salespeople have actually moved, moved up the stack. And therefore, you need uh, substantially smarter, more product-oriented salespeople uh, uh, rather than those who would want to simply churn through many, 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 many uh, cold calls and have only some tiny percentage of them work out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely agree. And, you know, we're seeing that. You know, very much in the uh, uh, in the marketplace today. I mean, it, it's uh, well so with. Um, uh, I think many everyone's you know familiar with HubSpot and you know mm -hmm. in, in, inbound marketing and the inbound revolution that Brian Halligan and Dharmesh Shah you know been talking mm -hmm. about uh, for some time. So yeah, it's it's definitely where we are uh, uh, today. So here's um uh, well I'll be cheeky. I've, I've got two more questions for you, but one of them can be a one word answer. But uh, <laughs> but but but. But this one is, isn't a one-word answer. Um, uh, so uh, you, you've previously said that you know you're obsessed with success. Um, mm -hmm. You know what is success for you with, with Intercom? Is it you know being a unicorn or, or what is success? Um, 
It, that's a, a deep and a nuanced and a personal type uh, uh, question. So, <clears throat> I mean, just a couple of things. Um, and it's no different from anyone who starts businesses like this. Um, all of us who start something like a business or uh, a some sort of organization or club or some sort of enterprise or people who create plays or start bands or um, uh, make art in a, a, of any shape or fashion, we're, we're doing it to affect people. We're doing it to make some sort of impact, good or bad. We're trying to touch and connect with people. Um, I really see, you know, most business people are artists, whether they know it or not. I mean, the purpose of art is to simply, um, you know, you know, touch people and connect to people and elicit some sort of emotion, make them happy or sad, um, uh, or a whole other broad range of emotions. Um, you know, I'm creating, I'm working really hard on this business to affect people too. I see how we could do better uh, as folks who create internet businesses when it comes to actually connecting with our users and our customers. I am very envious of people who have real-world businesses who can actually know the people who um, uh, who actually support their enterprise. I'm super, super jealous of people who run bars and cafes and restaurants who can literally walk into their business and see their customers and see their business happening. Internet businesses don't have that. Uh, and so I'm trying to create this thing that I think will be better for the world, will be cool, will be exciting, will be wonderful, um, will allow the artists who create businesses who make things online um, to connect with the people that they want to touch and connect with. Um, that's really what I'm doing this for. I'm human. I have an ego. I want externally to be seen as being successful at that. We end up you know, going to the lowest common denominator with those things, and that comes to money. And people say, hey, look at that company. They're making so, so many hundreds of millions of dollars. Therefore, they are successful. Hey, look at that company. They're worth so many money billions of dollars they are successful you know we do end up in this lowest co common denominator when you want to try and you know uh, compare one SaaS business with another or a SaaS business with a consumer business or a SaaS business with a factory you know again we go to this lowest common denominator and we use money to say that one is successful and one is not and you know competitive people people with chips on their shoulder people with something to prove people like me they they use that so in some senses that what success looks like the other part of it is deeply, deeply personal is that I love making things and I love building businesses <clears throat> and I love working with brilliant people and I love giving great, great people, uh, ambitious people like me, um, perhaps people slightly earlier in their career like me, an opportunity to be fucking amazing, to be brilliant and to um, prove themselves. Uh, and a personal ambition for me beyond the financial component beyond which simply is a kind of lowest common denominator proof of success and beyond the uh, change that we want to make in the world we want to make it uh, uh, easier for internet businesses and their customers to simply connect and have relationships and know each other beyond all those things um, I'm desperately passionate about the people who work for Intercom having um, uh, 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 a wonderful enriching fulfilling experience such that when they go on from Intercom they can start their own companies and learn from the things that we did so that's the kind of thing that drives me. It sounds fluffy. It's be, trying to be perfectly honest. It, it's not different from from anyone else who do, do, does these things. No, no, no. no. It's a, a you know great answer. And um, I, here here is your uh, one word answer question uh, and and last question. 
Um, are you still a, a Silicon Valley outsider? <laughs> uh, that's not a one-word uh, <laughs> answer at all. Oh, Jesus. Yes or no? <laughs> um, yes. You, you, you don't have yes. to Yeah. Okay. Yes, sure. Okay. Yeah. All right. Good. Good. <laughs> Well, um, you, you've been a you've been a fantastic uh, guest, and you know, um, uh, thanks for your time, uh, Owen. And uh, um, yeah, uh, I, I couldn't have asked for you know for for better answers and uh, you know better guests. So um, yeah, thank you very much. You're a gent. Thank you so much.